the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please. Although, as a kid, I grew up across the river in Alton, Illinois, my family is originally from the central plains of northern Minnesota and North Dakota. Apart from the ethnic neighborhoods in our large cities, it's hard for me to imagine a more homogenous place anywhere in the country. Everybody is the same. They're either Scandinavian or German, they're all white, and they're all Lutherans. <laughs> For longtime fans of NPR's Prairie Home Companion and Garrison Keeler, my family comes from Lake Wabagon. <laughs> but despite the, uh, the shared history of most who live in this part of the United States, there are others who also found their way uh, to places that are known for their short summers, their long winters, ice fishing, and Sven and Ole jokes. One was my uncle, Monty Strelo, a lawyer and the son of Czechoslovakian immigrants. Monty stood out from his friends and neighbors in any number of ways. He was taller, with the ruddier, darker complexion of an Eastern European. During the Second World War, he served in the Navy while most of his friends were in the army. And he was a Moravian, not a Lutheran. As a child actively engaged in the life of my Lutheran church, I remember many conversations with Uncle Monty about his faith and his church. Although its doctrine and the nature of worship were similar to those that I knew reasonably well, one particular aspect of their worship really caught my attention. At the exchange of the peace in this small, rural Moravian church, the men of the congregation were dismissed and asked to go outside to resolve any disputes that they might have with one another. Now that this was an expectation only for the men of the congregation is a sermon for a different day. But nevertheless, the act of reconciliation before communion done in such an intentional way, struck me even then as a small child as especially profound. Or at least until I realized as a teenager that the guys were going out in the front yard to have a smoke and to take a shot of whiskey. <laughs> this morning's gospel that we just heard recorded by the evangelist Matthew is among the most complex and difficult to interpret in all of scripture. It addresses seemingly unrelated themes, it focuses on human brokenness and failure, and announces harsh punishment for all who fail to hear God's commandments, to follow the Torah, to obey Jewish law. And lest you think that our dear rector dumped this text on me, I actually asked for it. Now truth be told, this could be a very short sermon this morning, and some of you may be grateful for that, but that's not going to happen. Who among us, truly, who among us would debate that in the absolute, adultery, divorce, deceit, undermine both our faith and the social fabric of our families, 
But truth also be told, I've heard this text preached that way many times. And I suspect you have as well. But when it is, it misses the point that Jesus is making in this dissonant text. The key to understanding today's gospel is not the recitation of sins and punishments, but rather the beginning of the text, in which Jesus offers a model for what we should do when relationships inevitably break down, when things go wrong in our lives, when our actions hurt others. At its core, Jesus is speaking to you and to me about our failings, but more importantly, about the need for forgiveness and reconciliation. It's not just a theological discourse in the abstract, but practical everyday advice for how we're to live our lives in relationship to God, to each other, and to the community as a whole. Now Matthew provides us with no specific indication of what may have prompted Jesus to address these issues in this way at this particular point in his ministry. What we might surmise, however, is that Matthew highlights this conversation because of problems within his own first century Christian community. We also might conclude that there were those among this largely Jewish Christian group of folk who were having troubles resolving conflicts among themselves. They held grudges against each other, and probably some of them simply weren't playing nice in the sandbox. And as faithful Jews, they were looking for direction from their own scriptures, and likely some justice for the sense of offense that they believed were being committed against them and other members of the community. However, rather than focusing on particular offenses and their penalties, Jesus offers a means for people to engage one another in the context of the faith they share and proffers a process for resolving both petty offenses and profound breaches of trust and fealty. Listen carefully. Jesus instructs his followers to meet with and talk to anyone with whom they have a grievance before they even enter the temple to offer their sacrifice. He encourages them to speak truth to each other about the offense committed and the pain incurred. And he asks that forgiveness be freely shared and reconciliation graciously received. It's a simple, straightforward model for communal life. Honest and open communication, individual responsibility for behavior, unlimited forgiveness, and reconciliation for our continued life together. Yet despite the simplicity of Jesus' counsel, how difficult I suspect you and I find embracing it. How many of us let grievances against others, even the ones we most love, simply fester? How often do these feelings morph into bitterness, anger, even hatred? And how painful it becomes for us when we simply cannot let them go.
when we can find no resolution, when we cannot put the hurt behind us. Nevertheless, we see the power of forgiveness and reconciliation in Jesus' own life. Speaking truth to Pilate, accepting the cross, forgiving those who put him to death, and reconciling us with his Father as he gave up his last breath. To be sure, this was no easy task for Jesus, nor is it an easy task for us to forgive, to reconcile. It wasn't easy for Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu when they formed the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to help an entire nation heal from the vicious and shameful history of apartheid. It wasn't for the grief-stricken families of Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, as they looked into the vacant stare of Dylan Ruth and forgave him. And no doubt, it isn't and won't be for those in our own community who continue to feel marginalized, denigrated, and patronized by a social structure in which race, class, and skin limit possibilities rather than embolden opportunities. How painful it is for this community of Holy Communion, a community which celebrates diversity, to realize that in the midst of our month-long celebration of Black History Month, so many of us can still be stopped for being black, jailed for being black, killed for listening to rap music, eating Skittles, and being black. That so many of us might foam with rage would be understandable. But Jesus in this morning's gospel offers a different path for the resolution of even the most vile of behaviors. In fact, this morning's gospel demands that each of us take a different path. Not that we turn the other cheek. Not that we ignore the continued injustice within our community. And not that we roll over in the face of ignorance, prejudice, and assault. Rather, Jesus implores us to continue to engage the very world in which we live. He calls on us as individuals, as the church, as a community of many colors, shades, and hues, to continue to confront power with the truth of our own lived experience. He calls on us to carry the burdens of injustice as witnesses to evil, but as witnesses to the gospel of Christ and its power to change human hearts. He calls us to extend the open arms of forgiveness even in the presence of the most heinous acts. And he calls on us most fundamentally to work tirelessly for the reconciliation of a world in which too many hurt, too many cry, and too many die. Dear friends, in a most profound way, perhaps this is how we ought best celebrate Black History Month. Perhaps this is how we make the remembrance a tangible experience of a 200-year journey 
shared not only by the sons and daughters of slaves, but by the sons and daughters of masters. And perhaps this is how we empowered the church as the fundamental instrument of change in a nation still struggling to accept us, all of us. God calls on us in Matthew's text this morning to exchange peace with a welcoming heart and a hopeful spirit. We're to gather at this table to fold our sacrifice into Jesus's, and we're to leave this table and every Sunday as disciples, as citizens of a community, as the very presence of Christ. We're called simply to do as Jesus did, to speak truth to power, to offer ourselves in nonviolent resistance to the forces of evil, to listen and to love, to forgive, and to bear witness to God's unbridled grace, God's unmerited forgiveness, and God's capacity to love even you and me.